friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. It's been a big week with Pope Francis consecrating all of humanity, including Russia and the Ukraine, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary on the Feast of the Annunciation. We continue to pray for all the people in danger in Ukraine, in the terrible invasion, and of course, everywhere else that there is a lack of peace and unrest. This week on the show, we are going to take a break from some of our coverage of the ongoing war to discuss the very shocking news that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have released a comprehensive guide to language around abortion and pregnancy. We're being told now not to use the term baby or embryo or things like abortion provider. It's just not the right way to promote their abortion ideology. You know, Orwell said, and I quote, if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. Very true, and we're seeing this play out in many ways in our in our culture. But first, I have my TCA colleagues Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed joining me. We're going to talk about a book that's been very talked about on the internet. It's called Ask Your Husband. A Catholic Guide to Femininity. We have some things <laughs> to complain about in the idea that this is a Catholic guide to femininity because the book says that women shouldn't work outside the home and that they owe unilateral obedience to their husbands. We're going to unpack that for you and I hope that our conversation has consequences. Welcome to the show, ladies. Hey, great to be with you. Glad to be here. So today we have something we all wanted to talk about because we're all wives and and um, have a lot of opinions about what uh, a proper Catholic wife should be like, as we ought to have, right? This is something that we ought to be thinking about and praying about. What, what kind of wives ought we to be? You know, what's our ideal of wifehood? How can we be the best kind of wife for our dear husbands? And the this discussion was sparked by a book by Stephanie Gordon called Ask your husband, a Catholic guide to femininity. So the premise of the book comes from the Bible verse about wives being subject to their husbands. Catholic author and writer Abigail Favale has been really outspoken about pushing back against this idea. She wrote a great piece in Catholic World Report. It's long, but it's full of great uh, things to think about, about how we consider ourselves in relation to our husband, sort of our personal freedom and how our are at his personal freedom and how those two things interact and what's our aim uh, as a couple as far as our relationship and I think putting that through the Catholic filter which is so deep and so philosophical and so ancient and so and so really holy after all these um, many centuries of, of refining this idea of the the beautiful relationship between the spouses that I thought it would be a great um, a great point of departure for some good discussion. I agree, Gracie, that this topic is 
in need of so much attention and is such an important topic, if not one of the most important topics in the modern era, really, in our culture. Unfortunately, I just think the book, her book, Ask Your Husband, falls incredibly short. And unfortunately, I think it kind of falls into this polarity that we have in terms of approaching the issue. You know, on the one hand, you've got sort of radical feminism, which has really taken over the market in terms of advice and on, on, you know, thought pieces, thought books on the topic. And it's really bad advice. You know, it's it's stuff like put yourself first. You should be splitting chores 50-50. And if not, like your husband's, you know, a jerk. And just sort of overlook the fact that men and women are different, you know, contribute to um, a marriage in very different and important ways, contribute to child rearing, contribute to the workforce in very different ways, and tries, in my opinion, I've written about this in my book, tries to force women, I think, into a male stereotype and, you know, makes women feel like if they prioritized uh, their home life and their family life, that they're somehow a failure or that they, you know, haven't lived up to their degrees. You know, we've seen pieces like that. Um, but her book takes things in sort of extreme opposite direction, uh, which, as Favali points out in her review in Catholic World Report, is really kind of fundamentalist and I don't think is a good advice to married couples because I think it puts them into boxes, um, stereotyped boxes, caricatures really about what men and women are. Uh, and B is probably more likely to do more harm than good in the sense that, you know, while I get the sort of shock value approach, unfortunately, you know, the shock value is like you shock to get the attention and then you make a deeper argument, but she sort of shocks and then just keeps shocking. <laughs> and that's what scares people right back into the arms of sort of radical feminism or our cultures, in my opinion, very narcissistic approach to marriage and family. You know what, before we dig into how she goes too far, let's let's dig down a little deeper into what is the model of marriage that the popular, secular, postmodern culture presents? Because they're still promoting marriage in a sense, right? Like, oh, marriage is still wonderful and you still get to walk down the aisle in your, in your white dress and that's all very exciting. But what is, what do you think, Lee, for instance, what is the, the model that the secular culture presents as the egalitarian marriage? Well, you know, that's funny because I think that so many people live together before getting married and sometimes for years. And now I think that they even often have children, uh, you know, while cohabitating. And so that framework of marriage, I think, has just been turned on its head. I mean, I think sometimes it's people doing it to, you know, to satisfy their old-fashioned parents or it's a, you know, it's an opportunity to have a big party. But I think it goes back to a lot of what Ashley was saying about this, this new egalitarian idea that there's no acknowledgement of the differences between men and women. There shouldn't be in the home, and there should be just a strict 50-50 pitching in. And I understand, especially when, you know, I have periods with young children and I'm not doing anything, out, you know, outside of just child-rearing and homekeeping, that it's always nice to see that you get the, uh, <laughs> you can see on paper when someone does a report about, like, how many, uh, much money a woman is actually making given the number of hours of work she does a day, you sort of feel validated. But it's not, it, I don't think it's something that you should, you shouldn't have to base your worth on that. I mean, I think when you're low, that can kind of perk you up. But 
uh, it's temporary, but I think that the idea that you have to divide the home things and the money things and finances and, you know, a, a lot of men even, rec- I mean, I think they're, they, they expect their women to work. What about this idea? Doesn't it make the marriage in that sense a very competitive place? It's competitive and it's transactional. What do you think, Ashley, that model of marriage? I do, and I think that's why there's a lot of resentment. And, you know, to answer your first question is, you know, what is what is being held up as a good marriage is, I think, sort of a gender-neutral situation where, oh, an egalitarian marriage is where men and women are basically doing the exact same things. Like, they're yeah. making about the same amount of money. They're both, you know, one cooks these nights, the other cooks these nights. And in her book, she talks, she refers to this as the transgenderism of marriage. Right. But the problem is that her antidote is what I would call the sex stereotyping of marriage, which is completely, like, walks away from any nuanced middle ground um, and just argue if you're talking about people having a place you're going to lose people right there and I think that's sort of a not actually a very Catholic um, way of talking about the issue that women have a place and it's in the home men have a place and it's in the workplace in fact if you read um, especially you know like Pope John Paul II the popes and the uh, church thinkers who were writing when things were really radically changing in society in terms of women starting to work, you know, outside of the home. They talk about vocations and complementarity, and I think actually make it very clear that there is no cookie cutter marriage, and there's no fixed idea of what is what is an account, you know, or there's there's guiding principles, but there's certainly not these sort of superficial markers that everybody's trying to draw our attention to. Yeah, and I think it's those cookie-cutter things, like her very specific directive for what is supposed to happen on the wife's behalf is where it really loses a lot of people that... If there's not even a space for reflection because it's so specific given the, uh, you know, the, the, the over, like tradition on steroids sort of feeling of, of her. It's not really even advice. It's like, a, it's a, a, the real directive. And she's always talking about, even if, I, I mean, I, I read a, a part where you're not even supposed to hire anyone to help with, you know, house cleaning um, because it's a, it's part of your salvation that, it's essential to salvation that you do your own house cleaning. So it's sort of like a, like an, a, a Protestant Puritan little house in the prairie look at how a family should operate, right? He goes out yeah. to, to, to gather the crops and, and she stays home and make and churns butter. On the other hand, a woman does have, I mean, she, she is drawing from a real place. The real place is that women do have a special affinity for the home, that if, if men were running households across America, well, households would be much more disorderly and dirty, and the children wouldn't be well-fed normally. And, uh, you know, let's face it, we women do have a way of taking the home and making it a, a place of excellence, that, uh, that, that resides somewhere in our DNA. I'm firmly convinced that it's in our DNA, just the way fishing is on the male chromosome you know why chromosome has fishing and hunting and and tinkering with cars endlessly and and other toys what do you think ashley i think that she comes from a good place and favali in her review which is a very well done review makes that argument she's the generous the magnanimous approach here is that you know i think she's probably trying to elevate something that women are naturally called to um, and that when infused with sort of a spiritual dynamic is a very sort of beautiful thing that our culture has 
belittled. The culture has. Home. Mm-hmm. And there is a need for women because, well, yeah, I mean, to sort of reclaim that territory as, or that, that work, that vocation, that calling as something um, beautiful and worthy of respect. And in my opinion, not quantifiable by capitalistic terms of, oh, you know, this is what you would make for this. You know, like that, it's so classic and objectifying <laughs> to just slap numbers on it because mm-hmm. that's what makes it worthwhile is the right. number, mm-hmm. not the actual cultivating of, of the family and the home, which is the you know, most essential part of society. And this is where, again, Catholic Church teaching has so much richness to offer on that. But, you know, again, the thing that she so overlooks or the sort of truncated approach overlooks the important and essential role that women have played outside the home and in society in different ways as doctors of the church, um, you know, as these saints who were, you know, speaking out against heresy and, you know, literally going into battle. It's like this idea that, that there's just sort of one depiction of woman, you know, the, the quote unquote role or place of a woman is really something that is profoundly anti-Catholic. You know, Leah, as you were saying, these like rigid descriptions, that's not how the church works, especially not in the personal domain. The church actually gives extraordinary amounts of personal freedom and space within the domain of faith and family, just like there's no one prescription for having a healthy spiritual life, which is why we have so many different orders and norms. And, you know, some people, you know, pray the, what is the prayers that throughout the day? The hours. The hours, you know, um, some people go to daily math. I mean, there's so many different ways to live it out. Um, just like there's so many different ways for a married couple to live out the vocation of marriage um, with, you know, with their children and the idea that, um, that precludes having health as a home. (laughs) Sorry. Nope. You know, you mentioned, um, the saints and this is a big deal because Stephanie Gordon, who wrote this book, Ask Your Husband, in which she says that women shouldn't work outside the home and that they owe unilateral obedience to their husband. Um, she's she's a convert to Catholicism, and and I think if you know the Catholic tradition, if it's baked into your bones, and or or you're a convert and you've really deepened your understanding, you know that women in the church over the many centuries aren't aren't necessarily required to be in order to be saints to be in a family to owe obedience to a man i mean look we have this rich amazing tradition of the convent the the, our sisters uh the consecrated virgins i mean women who are entirely in a feminine environment and they do owe obedience to god (laughs) but they don't owe obedience to a man and they that is how they're reaching holiness and also as you mentioned all the different saints we have this huge wide variety of women saints from queens from women who've gone to uh, led armies in battle like saint joan of arc doctors of the church like saint Teresa of avila doctor of philosophy of the church you know people she's right up there with with our greatest thinkers our greatest minds our most intense philosophers who've shaped 
who shape the who shape shape Western civilization. These aren't these aren't women thinking in a in a closet somewhere whose works whose minds don't have an effect on the world. The doctors of our church, ha- women, the women doctors of our church have shaped Western civilization. Everything that we do somehow is affected by the power of their minds uh, as it's transmitted through history. So if you're missing a lot of those pieces you might easily, uh, those pieces of Catholic history and Catholic tradition, you might easily think, well, the perfect woman is, you know, at home, taking care of the home and the children and paying unilateral obedience to her husband. And that's just a very narrow way of thinking. You know, I think uh, the author and, you know, even all of our listeners who, you know, may at times feel sort of disenchanted with um, the role of women in the church should read Pope John Paul II's letter to women. It's not very long. And he, I mean, he explicitly thanks women who work. Um, he, he, he writes to and thanks women who are without children who are aunts and women who work in social services and um, basically says that the world needs women in every domain. And, you know, I, I have a chapter about this in my book about actually how essential women are in the workplace, that they bring a sort of civilizing um, uh, dynamic. Um, they... You know, men who work with women tend to have better, um, you know, more respect for women, better views for women. Men who have sisters, um, men who, um, interest, like all kinds of interesting things, like men who have more women in the workplace tend to be more charitable, you know, yeah. give more money to charity because the priorities of women are different and they tend to be more focused on their community, their families, and again, it gets to this complementary complementarity idea, which this book tries, but in my opinion, fails to to present to a modern audience, which is that we really do need each other, and women do make the world a better place. But a key part of that is their role and influence in every single aspect and, and domain of civilization. And I think about the way the, the way this book contrasts with the work of uh, Noelle Maring and Carrie Gress with their Theology of the Home books and website. And if you need to have some, you know, sort of, you know, Ashley, you mentioned maybe you need some, some spiritual booing up of, you know, how you know, your feelings about dreading housework or feeling overwhelmed by the kids or anything. I, I think that the way they present it, it just makes it, you know, the sort of beautiful act of love that's creating of a home. And while the pictures are seriously aspirational. Um, I think that's a part of being kind to yourself and, and thinking about, you know, what can I do to make my home more? And, you know, because Gordon does talk about the, the um, domestic church a lot, but it shouldn't be this, this drudgery that you like. Um, and I think that the Theology of Home series really um, changes it into something that's um, you know, noble and beautiful and, and integrated into your faith. Um, instead of just you know, prescriptive. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, with my co-hostesses from the TCA, Lee Sneed and Ashley McGuire. And we're talking about a book that's been lighting up the internet called um, Go Ask Your Husband. Or just ask your husband, I should say. And what a what a it is a very provocative title, ask your husband. But you know, I I, I must say that I'm a doctor, and 
I, I talk a lot with younger women who are in medical school or looking, thinking about going to medical school, and I, they are falling into the trap. I see many, most of them, falling into the trap of thinking that they're going to find all the, the, the flourishing of their lives is going to be centered in their medical profession. And they don't realize that what happens to many, many women who embark on these very intense professional careers is that they get to be a certain age and they say, oh my gosh, I'm missing out on what's actually going to help me flourish. So Stephanie Gordon, to be fair, is writing, um, she is fighting back against this terrible reality that's striking so many young women out there. And sometimes when it's too late, when they can't build that nest and, and receive those children just because of their age. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that if they were to come across this book, it might further, you know, sort of scare them away from that. That's they true. Encountered it <laughs> when their careers were just taking off and um, thinking about things that way. The, uh, it's funny, the Amazon reviews, some of them are glowing. And again, I think it's because, you know, we have seen, a, you know, deterioration of the family and we want people to, you know, embrace marriage and, you know, think about how to have a godly marriage with their husband. But they, so many of the reviews were giving sort of the same advice that uh, we've been talking about today about, you know, reading the women saints, reading Pope John Paul's encyclicals, theology of the body, all of these things. And another thing that, uh, that really struck me in this book, which I thought, again, was coming from a great place, this idea that you're best friends with your spouse. But I don't, and especially because she does seem to rely on Aristotle some, it just doesn't even, when you think about his definitions of friendship, it's just such a strange thing. I mean, you would always defer. You always ask. It doesn't seem, it seems like it's only demands in the other direction. You do what they like, and they don't do what you like. So that means we'd be out fishing and hunting. In some cases, <laughs> or, you know, Tinkering under car hoods. <laughs> that doesn't really, right, it doesn't really seem like a friendship, and certainly not a best friendship. Um, well, Ashley, so, Ashley yeah, said the word. The friendship is good, but and doing things you shared interests is good, but shared, I think, mm-hmm. should be you know more emphasized. <laughs> well, Ashley, Ashley used a word that I think ought to characterize a Christian Catholic or a Catholic or both a Christian and a Catholic marriage is the word magnanimous, magnanimity, right? I, I would think in a, I would think a magnanimous husband would recoil at a wife who obeyed him and was completely devoted to his needs. I mean, he would say, you know, a a man with a great spirit, with a great mind, which is what magnanimity means, a great spirit, he he would not want his wife to be that person. He would want to have... Um, a partner, a, a person, a, a friend standing next to him, who who interacts with him on on the same level, uh, and and right. and then is magnanimous right. and is magnanimous right back and says, "Yeah, let's go fishing." <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, I think the probably best sort of real linchpin critique in Savali's review of the book is that she says even though she comes from a good place, she basically falls into the trap of modern thinking about all dynamics, which is thinks of it all through the lens or framework of power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just, I don't know if it's our society or if it's, um, you know, just, 
I'm not sure why we are so entrenched in these power dynamics, but it really does seem to define everything we talk about, whether, you know, it's politics or money. But, you know, if you if you go and, like, read the newspaper or, or watch the news, everything really is filtered through the lens of power. Again, um, it's the sort of Christian message is profoundly the opposite. I mean, like Jesus rejected earthly power time and time again. And the model he gives us is one of sacrifice of the self to the other. So, you know, it is a very sort of hard thing to break out of in terms of our thinking, but it's just, it's just not a Christian mindset. Yeah. You know, uh, it's very, I mean, Jesus, if, 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 uh, is if Miss Gordon, who wrote this great book, is going to pick and choose Bible verses, certainly he who will be first needs to be last. And if you wish to be the first in heaven, you have to be everyone else's servant. I think that applies, has to apply just as much to the husband in the picture as as to the wife. I mean, the husband has to serve his wife. If his, if his wife isn't, you know, if his first after his, you know, his obedience to God and, 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 and his faith, after that, his wife needs to be his first care and concern. And that, it, that means her happiness and her flourishing and her ability, you know, to get up in the morning and, and have a mind of her own. And that's, that's a fabulous thing for a man, a wife with a mind of her own. Yeah, and I think that that's part of our understanding of what, I mean, I can't disagree with her about men and fathers being protectors of the home and the family, but... That protection is multifaceted and, mm-hmm. you know, to protect your happiness and your mental well-being and to protect you from the dead mouth in the track because it's disgusting. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's everything. It's to protect your heart and your mind and your soul. And Wait, wait, uh, to protect you from fishing every Sunday. He needs to protect exactly. you from that. Exactly. So many things. <laughs> When I was reading the around the time that this book came out and people were talking about it, this quote un, in an unconnected way, I came across this quote um, from St. John Christendom, and I thought it's the perfect sort of Catholic response, almost like he was rising from the grave to say no. He said, when we speak of the wife obeying the husband, we normally think of obedience in military or political terms, the husband giving orders and the wife obeying them. But while this type of obedience may be appropriate in the army, it is ridiculous in the intimate relationship of marriage. The obedient wife does not wait for orders. Rather, she tries to discern her husband's needs and feelings and responds in love. When she sees her husband is weary, he encourages. she encourages him to rest. When she sees him agitated, she soothes him. When he is ill, she nurses and comforts him. When he is happy and elated, she shares in his joy. Yet, such obedience should not be confined to the wife. The husband should be obedient in the same way. When she is weary, he should relieve her of her work. When she is sad, he should cherish her holding her gently in his arms. When she is filled with good cheer, he should also share her good cheer. Thus a good marriage is not a matter of one partner obeying the other, but of both partners obeying each other. You know what, Ashley? We need to end right there because I think that that's that's a, a call to all of us, wives or husbands, that our marriages depend on, on serving each other and our happiness depends on that and, and our eventual eternal life depends on, on living all for the other entirely. So thank you ladies for joining us, to joining me on Conversations with Consequences. It was so delightful to talk to you and I hope you have a wonderful rest of Lent. Thank you. Bye.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We're very happy to welcome back a friend of the show's. Her name is Dr. Donna Harrison. She's from the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. This is one of my favorite professional organizations. Maybe it's my favorite professional organization in the United States. It takes a, a very important field, not just for women, but for men too, and to, for families, for children, for babies, which is the field of obstetrics and gynecology. And it puts it squarely in the pro-life camp, which is where it ought to be, because medicine should be Hippocratic in our culture, in our country, in which every life matters, every life counts. And that's what the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists works towards. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. You know, Dr. Harrison, I do all those wonderful things I said about your um, organization. I really do believe them. I feel very strongly about it. And, and I hope that all our listeners will take a moment to, to Google um, and we'll give you the, the, the website at the end of the show. AAPLOG.org, I believe, if, I don't, if I'm not getting that right. It's a wonderful website. It's worth a visit and, and it helps to direct you. Besides all, lots of good work that they do and Dr. Harrison will tell us more about it, but it helps, it can direct you to pro-life OBGYNs in your area. Because if you are someone in the childbearing years, um, or even after, <laughs> you want the right medical care infused with the right values, and and the right values that that preserve all human life, and and work with our bodies naturally. Would you agree that that's what AAPLOG does, Dr. Harrison? You're right, Gracie, and thank you so much for talking about us because we do value the Hippocratic Oath. We do take very seriously the promise not to kill our patients, not to do abortion, not to do euthanasia. It's important to us that we be helping the patient and not harming them for some theoretical social good. So that's one reason why we're, that's why we're pro-life. That's what it means. And mm -hmm. that's what it means to adhere to the Hippocratic Oath. There's also, there's other ways that some OBGYNs don't do things right. And I'm talking about the way that they suppress women's fertility instead of working with our natural fertility. Well, you know, it is remarkable. I had a experience of having a colleague from Kenya visit and we were talking about the issue of fertility and what he said was in his country because many people in, in his country are tied to the land and tied to animal husbandry that the idea of fertile cycles is completely normal mm. and he was shocked to find out that most women in the United States are unaware of their fertile cycle and unaware of when they become pregnant. It was a remarkable moment when we realized that it's so easy to figure out once you understand how the woman's, a woman's body works, then it's so easy to figure out when you can become pregnant, when you can't. It's something that actually I think ought to be taught in high school biology. It's important that we as women understand how our bodies work and how they don't work. And instead of trying to eliminate a normal function, that we work with our normal function. It actually scares me, Dr. Harrison, when I think about um, the millions and millions of women who from a very young age, start to suppress their normal cycles and then do this for decades. And I don't think that we know really, or maybe we're trying not to know, what that means in across the population, across time, in medical ways and in social ways. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYN doesn't have a specific policy about the use of hormonal contraception or not. It's not something that we have, that we have majored on. We have a variety of views in it. 
it. But in my personal view, I think that it's important that women understand their natural function. And I think once women understand how their body naturally functions, that it will empower them to make a decision about whether or not they want to suppress their cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the more knowledge we have, the better. I wonder if the best thing to do is to, to provide all that knowledge, and I'm sure you agree, to women so that they can make the right decision for them instead of sort of hiding um, so many things. And that's really what I wanted to talk to you about, about hiding things, because your opposite organization, which is a very powerful organization called the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they released this week something called A Guide to Language and Abortion. And let me just read you a quote from this. It says, much of the language that is colloquially used to describe abortion or discuss health policies that impact abortion has a basis in anti-choice rhetoric and is inherently biased and inaccurate, and at the very least, not medically appropriate. It means they're threatened by the truth. It means they're threatened by words like fetal heartbeat, which we all know is what is seen when you look at an ultrasound. What an ultrasound does is it shows the motion of muscles and bones. What you see when you look inside that baby's chest is a heart moving. Mm -hmm. And that heart has all the chambers formed by eight weeks of gestation. So what? (laughs) it is remarkable to me that ACOG is so terrified by the truth that they would put out this this Orwellian speak, this misinformation, this piece that says, oh, we can't talk about fetal heartbeat because somehow it will cause the woman to understand that she's got a baby inside. Well, how ridiculous. We all know from ultrasound pictures that are text to us, you know, the first baby picture, that the person inside the womb is alive and is a baby. I mean, there is a, it's not a pig or a frog or a pine tree. This is a baby. And so it, it, it is just very telling how terrified ACOG is of that reality. They're afraid that the mom will realize who she's carrying and then make decisions based on the best interests of her baby. So some of the words that they would like OBGYNs to stop using is, as you mentioned, baby. And they would like us to say embryo for the first eight weeks after conception and then feed us right up until the time the baby's delivered. Of course, this makes no sense because no one ever said, oh, I'm so excited about your fetus coming next week or let's have the fetus party. Uh, I'm sorry, the fetus shower. Nobody ever said that. They also don't like the word heartbeat. And I want to back you up on that, Dr. Harrison. I do OB ultrasound of very, very early pregnancies every single day. And when when the technician who actually performs the ultrasound reports it to me, they say uh, fetal heart rate of. And sometimes we're talking about babies that were conceived four weeks ago. So these are little teeny tiny human beings who measure one and a half centimeters from the top of the head to to the bottom. And they have what we call a heart a heartbeat because it is and we call it a heart rate because that's what it is and it's very distinguishable from the woman's from the mom's heart rate which is always much slower well and not only that that are medically accurate because mm-hmm. what they're saying is all oh, fetal electrical activity you don't see electrical activity with an ultrasound as you well know you see motion mm-hmm. you see motion of a muscle and a muscle that pumps blood that has four chambers is called a heart, a heart. <laughs> what a remarkable thing so it, <laughs> when you talk about medical accuracy Heart is the medically accurate term, and heart rate is the medically accurate term. But again, truth terrifies ACOG, and we're for the truth. We're because we believe that truth empowers women. Another thing that they don't want us uh, to use is uh, abortion on demand, elective abortion, and partial birth abortion. Those are terms they are trying to ban. Why do you think that those terms are offensive to ACOG? 
Because abortion, everyone knows, abortion, elective abortion, partial birth abortion, they, people know what those terms mean. Mm-hmm. And we use the term elective abortion because there's multiple different definitions of abortion. In the medical literature, there's probably 12 to 14 different definitions. When we are talking abortion that has no medical indication, we're talking an elective abortion. So the term abortion technically means the ending of a pregnancy before 20 weeks. Right? So they're hiding behind the equivocation of that term. When we talk about abortion, we're talking about a woman who, for one reason or another, has no medical indication for ending that pregnancy and decides to end the pregnancy for a social reason. ACOG is afraid that if people understand the difference between a abortion that's done for the purpose of no medical indication as compared to when a mother will die if the pregnancy continues, they're afraid if people understand that and they'll understand really what ACOG is about. And ACOG is about pushing abortion over anything, over medical common sense. They'll perform malpractice to do abortions. And their practice bulletin on medical abortion is a manual in malpractice. And I think it's just remarkable that ACOG is so terrified by the truth that they will not deal with the reality of what this procedure is that they're pushing. Here's so another here's another term that they don't like is the term abortion provider. Now, I understand why they don't like that. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe of only a small, a very small percentage of OBGYNs actually perform abortion. And so what ends up happening is those that do end up performing a lot of abortions and they become pegged as abortion providers. And so somebody who works at the Planned Parenthood down the street isn't also a respected OBGYN in the community. Like that's what they end up doing. They're abortion providers. So the ACOG doesn't want us to use that term. Is that right? Well, that's correct. And most uh, abortions now are not performed by OBGYNs or even by physicians. Most abortions in this country are chemical abortions and they're distributed by non-physician providers, nurses, clinicians, but not physicians. So we're reflecting the fact that the abortion industry is now performing abortions primarily by people who are not OBGYN physicians. And ACOG also does not want that fact to be revealed. Between 75 and 93% of OBGYNs, depending on where you survey, do not do abortions. So you've got the majority of abortions provided by non-physician providers. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the chief executive officer of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Now, you and your organization, you have a beautiful theme, which is caring for both. And I think that that's, that's a very... It's very beautiful, and at the same time, it's so sad that that OBGYNs today should have to join a separate organization in order to have a beautiful theme like that. Because the truth is, is that people who go into the care of pregnant women, they go there with a heart full of love for the baby, obviously. Why we went into the profession, Mm -hmm. because we love them both. You care for them both. And so what's happening is a perversion from on high, so from the professional organization. And those professional organizations like ACOG, they're not run by the by run-of-the-mill OBGYNs, right? They're run by these factions of people who have nothing better to do. It's very interesting. Someday, I would love to follow the funding for ACOG because although they do charge very high membership fees, it's very clear that their funding actually comes from outside of the OBGYN community. Mm-hmm. OBGYN do not like abortion, as we've said. Knowing that between 93 
between 75 and 93 percent of OBGYNs don't do abortions. It's remarkable that ACOG has never surveyed their membership before taking a hardline pro-abortion advocacy stand. And they are clearly and admittedly and on paper pro-abortion. And they've clearly said that they will, that one of their prime goals is to work for abortion access throughout the country. So it's remarkable that ACOG has so dismissed, so dissed their membership that they don't care what the membership says. So the question becomes, who's making these decisions and why? And I would love to follow the money sometime and find out who is funding this particular stance for ACOG because they have taken an extremely hard line pro-abortion stance. They've, they, they've never found an abortion law that they that they don't support and they've never ever supported the most common sense pro-life laws like informed consent like parental consent for girls that are 12 and 13 so it's remarkable to me that ACOG is taking the stance that they're taking publicly and shamelessly when their membership takes an opposite stance and why do you think that I'm, I'm actually I know the answer to this question I think that the run of the mill OBGYN sort of goes along with it being in these professional organizations is not something, first of all, that a lot of them want to pay for because it's very expensive and it's not something they have the time to pay attention to when they do belong. Is that is that true? Well, a lot of OBGYNs belong to ACOG because they falsely believe that they have to belong to ACOG in order to maintain their board certification. Oh, but that's not okay. true. So that's why a lot of them are members. But you can maintain your board certification without being a member of ACOG. The second reason that OBGYNs uh, join ACOG is that ACOG does have some very good information and resources on things other than abortion, on real medical issues. ACOG's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Problem is, most OBGYNs are busy. They they love both patients. They don't want to get involved in controversial issues. They want to take care of their moms and take care of the babies and come home and have a life. Mm-hmm. So, so they don't fight the system. Now, there are some of us who feel so strongly that there needs to be a professional pro-life voice that we join APLOG and we speak out and we make known the truth about what abortion does to women and defend both our patients, both the pregnant woman and her, un- her pre-born child. And so that's why I would encourage OBGYNs that are listening, hey, check us out, join us, we need your voice. And don't you feel that you're also, through this process, saving your profession? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't put us in the savior role, but I will say if OBGYNs don't speak out, then what you will have is a wave of, of politically motivated people who want to use OBGYN for a political agenda. And that political agenda has nothing to do with healthcare and has everything to do with making OBGYNs an agent of the state. Mm-hmm. And we've we've been here before historically. It does not end well. When the medical profession becomes an agent of the state, you end up with horrible atrocities. Well, I would call that saving the profession because when a woman, when anybody goes to their doctor, what they're hoping for is to be seen as a human being um, yeah. and their child too, and to be treated with that with that beautiful delicacy of feeling and of respect and dignity, which is in the Hippocratic Oath, and it's which yeah. is in Western Hippocratic medicine. And we have to, pres- I feel very strongly as a doctor that it is all our duties as any medical professional of any kind, of any, in any type. We should all be working really hard to preserve that, that beautiful nobility of, of Hippocratic medicine. I completely agree with you. And I think that if patients realize that the Hippocratic Oath is 
the foundation of the doctor-patient relationship. And if they realized that doctors who are pro-abortion are violating the Hippocratic Oath, that it, it would change how, how people interact with their doc. And you know what would really help? If every time a patient went into their doctor's office, they would say to the doctor, Doctor, did you take the Hippocratic Oath? Let me see the oath that you take. Did you put it on your wall? Oh, does it say I will not do an abortion? Does it say I will not give a drug to kill somebody, euthanasia? Because the real Hippocratic Oath does. Mm-hmm. That's true. So if, if patients would ask their doctors, it would change the face of medicine. Because doctors are, some of them don't even know what the oath says. Some of them are hiding behind the fact that the patients don't know they never took the Hippocratic Oath. So it's, it's, a, it's something that a patient can do to, to help save the medical profession, as you said. And doctors need to realize this Hippocratic Oath is the doctor-patient relationship. It's how a patient knows that the doctor won't kill them. Well, Dr. Harrison, I'm sorry we're out of time. It's always such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope that you'll give us your time again soon. Thanks for all you do, and for those listening who want to learn more about Dr. Donna Harrison and the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, please visit aplog.org. Thanks again, Donna. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the Sunday's Gospel, which you will engage us with perhaps the most famous short story of all time. It's called the Parable of the Prodigal Son, after the youngest of two brothers. But it could easily have been called the Parable of the Merciful Father or the Parable of the Merciless Brother. We know the details of the story so well that we can pass immediately to trying to understand it better and apply it more fully. Let's begin with the younger son. What was his sin? His essential sin was not all that he did to blow his inheritance on a dissolute life. It was to treat his father as if he were dead. To ask for the inheritance while the father was still living was tantamount to saying, You're dead to me, old man. I don't want to wait until you croak. Give me now what you're planning to give me when you finally breathe your last. And the father, doubtless more concerned about the direction of his son's life than about nursing his own wounds at the son's ingratitude and presumption, gave him the inheritance, probably figuring out it would only be the only chance that the son might have of learning the lesson he had long missed. The son, as we know, went and squandered everything in an immoral life. Eventually, when a famine hit the land where he was, he needed to do work that no Jew would have ever signed up for, to care for pigs, whom the Jews considered unclean animals. He was eventually so hungry that he longed for what the pigs were eating, something that indicated basically that he had become almost subhuman. But that's when the grace of conversion hit him. Coming to his senses, St. Luke writes, he realized that his father's hired hands were already well-fed, and he decided to return to his father's house to apologize for his sin and to ask to be treated like one of these hired servants. When we hear the word today, hired hand, most of us think, I imagine, that he was asking to be treated like an employee, but it really meant less than a slave. Slaves were considered members of the household to some degree, and they were taken care of and fed. The hired hands were not members of the family. They were responsible for their own upkeep if they could get a job day by day. 
But the younger son recognized that the father was kind and gave more than enough food to eat, even to those who had no right for food. The son was beginning to reawaken to the father's goodness, but he still didn't understand the father. He rehearsed his speech as he was returning home, that he had sinned against God and against his father, both of whom he had treated as if they were dead to him, and didn't deserve to be treated as a son. But the father, seeing him far off, was filled with merciful love and ran to his son, probably hustling the way a child scampers across an airport to greet his or her father returning from military service overseas. The son began his well-practiced confession, but the father interrupted him. He called for the finest garment to be put around him to cover up all the swine excrement with which doubtless he had been covered. He put a signet ring on his finger to show that he still had power of attorney over the father's goods. He had sandals placed on his feet to symbolize that he was free to go about as he pleased. Slaves never had sandals. Whereas he was prepared to ask to be treated like a hired hand lower than slaves, the father restored him to his full dignity. This is obviously an allusion to what God seeks to do for all of us through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. When we come to our senses, when we realize that the Father not only isn't dead, but is good and cares for us, and we begin to make the journey home, He runs out to meet us, to restore us to who we really are. In the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, elsewhere in the same chapter of Luke 15, Jesus tells us that heaven rejoices more for the return of one sinner than for 99 who didn't need to repent, because every forgiven sinner is a restored beloved daughter or son of the Father. The Father initiates a massive celebration, having the special fattened calf slaughtered for the Son's return, because, as he says, my son was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. That's what happens in every good confession. Every reconciliation is a resurrection when we're raised from the dead by the Father's mercy, which is why I believe Jesus founded the sacrament on Easter Sunday evening. The sacrament is God's great lost and found department for his beloved children. The whole point of Lent is to bring us back fully to the Father's house so that he can restore us to who we really are. Let's turn to the second son. It seems that Jesus told the whole parable in order to get us to focus on the older brother's reaction to the Father's mercy. The setting for the parable, St. Luke tells us, was in response to the Pharisees and scribes' complaints that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. The two groups were like a society of older brothers in the parable who would rather have had the sinners never convert than for Jesus to show them mercy. We can see in the older brother's behavior that he too never really grasped his father's goodness or love. When he got angry and refused to enter the party, he passive-aggressively waited outside until the father came for him. He couldn't join in the celebration because in his heart his brother was still dead. When the father pleaded with him to enter the party, he replied with anger that revealed that he had never related to his father out of love, but only out of duty. He was essentially a slave who, though even though he never left the father's house, really didn't want to be there either and resentfully envied his father's generosity. Look, he stammered, all these years I have served you and not once did I disobey your orders. That's the language of a slave, not a son. You can almost hear him calling his father master or boss man rather than dad. And it gets worse. Yet when this son of yours returns, he says, can't even refer to his own flesh and blood as his brother, 
because he was filled with hatred against his sibling and against his father because he had never even been allowed to kill a young goat for a party with his friends, yet the other brother caught a fattened calf. We can see clearly that while the younger brother was restored to health, the older brother was still very sick. The younger brother now at least understood the love of the father and was rejoicing it, whereas the older brother was still in a bitter pigsty of his own making. We don't know whether the older brother entered the party with the father or not. The reason is likely because Jesus knew it was still an open question whether the scribes and the Pharisees would share his joy and come to welcome and eat with the same prodigal sons and daughters with whom Jesus was dining, or whether they would continue to remain defiantly and enviously outside. There's an obvious application for all of us of the second part of the parable. Do we rejoice when other sinners return to the faith, or do we resent that after they've had their fun, they're now restored to the same status as we have? Are we happy that the person who used to bully us in grammar school, or the estranged family member who used to spread lies about us, or the local drug pusher or gang member, or the person who destroyed our best friend's marriage, came to church and sat next to us? Do we look at others, not with the love of brothers and sisters, grateful for their conversion, but resentfully as fallen away sons and daughters of God with whom we don't ever want to associate? Do we look at the practice of the faith in general as a series of duties, or as God as a powerful taskmaster, rather than the whole life of faith and the relationships therein as a drama of love with the most loving Father of all time? If God's greatest joy is forgiving, and he wants us not only to enter that joy, but join him in going out to invite others to return to his house so that the joy of heaven will be even greater, is that really what we want? On Sunday, God the Father is inviting all of us repentant prodigals to his house, where he seeks to renew us in our baptismal garments, to restore us to our full inheritance, and to help us to walk with true freedom. And if we show, he won't merely kill a fattened calf for the celebration, but something far greater, a lamb looking as if he has been slain, so that through communion with his own beloved son on the inside, we may live always in the love of the Father, and have his love become fully alive in our life. This is the path by which our Lent will be translated into an Easter joy that will know no end. May this Sunday's conversation with Jesus be that consequential. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 